This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. In Space, no one can hear you podcast, but we're going to talk about it anyway with a new Lost in Space edition of Lends Me Your Ears. So, Lost in Space. This is kind of an odd genre when you think about it, because it's there seems to me that there's space adventure movies and then there's space misadventure movies and I guess this is this could be both <laughs> well you know every outer space film usually in- introduces some form of tension uh, in the idea of the mission could go awry or a big alien shows up to <laughs> eat the crew or what, what have yeah. you um, you know so there's, there's there's rarely a movie about a space mission that, that goes well that'd no be, it's true well otherwise it'd be pretty dull yeah, yeah no absolutely I agree and you know the, the, the granddaddy's probably 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah. But we mustn't forget the sequel, actually, 2010, which I, I actually quite like, the year we make, made contact. It's certainly not remembered with the kind of glory that the original is. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's been a lot recently, too. Um, Interstellar and Gravity and uh, even Apollo 13, I guess, is a based on real life space misadventure film. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely historical uh, docudrama of sorts. Uh, well, well directed by Ron Howard. I'm, I'm curious to see what he does in his whaling film. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> you know, you right. Think about it, whaling ships were kind of like the spaceships of, of their day. So, that, you know, I have a feeling it'll be sort of kind of along the same lines. But um, it's, uh, yeah, well, I mean, Apollo 13, uh, you know, really plays on those uh, fears of, of imagining what it's like to be out there in the cold of space, you know, with as uh, I think it was um, Fred Ward in uh, The Right Stuff says, you know, I'm, I'm sitting up atop a, a canister full of explosive that was put together by the lowest bidder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which is, you know, m- maybe not the best way to refer to uh, space travel, but it, it certainly can apply in, in, in some ways and forms. And, uh, you know, and then, then you get into things like Alien where you get into... Yeah, you know, where it the, crosses over into like horror a yeah, little bit. Yeah, but yeah. but you also got Yafet Kodo and Harry Dean Stanton arguing about you know union breaks and <laughs> right, things like right. That. So you yeah, know, Harry the, Dean Stanton, right, right. Yes, yeah, the, yeah. The, <laughs> you the you nice, always agree with him. <laughs> a nice a nice layer of realism mm-hmm. in there, but um, and maybe the first movie to really talk a space movie or sci fi to talk about class distinction which I thought was kind of interesting in that film. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. But, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it just, you know, there was the below decks and the above decks kind of kind of deal. Yeah, outer space is merchant marine. Yes. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we, we went back and looked at a bunch of different uh, space movies, um, and uh, but pretty much hinging it on the release of The Martian, which when I remember first seeing the trailers of this, I hadn't read the book, but I saw. I thought, okay, Ridley Scott doing a space movie. I'm I'm there. Like I'm I'm one of the people who actually <laughs> like no, Prometheus. Yeah, no question. Yeah, um, me too. So hey, how about that? I didn't I know. even know that. Uh, so so you know, I'm I'm there. But I was a little confused when I saw Jessica Chastain and Matt Damon in this film, based on the fact that they were both last year in Interstellar and the trailer <laughs> for The Martian didn't look that different from Interstellar. Clearly, now that I've seen both films, The Martian is very different, but but just the feel of it and the look of it, I was like, wow, why why would they why would we go back to this well? But now now that I see it, I'm like, okay, clearly this character uh, is Mark Watney is a very different guy than than the astronaut from from Interstellar. Yeah, it, it's funny. I my part of my brain was thinking that oh, maybe these Films were in production really close to one another, and it's just one of those things where you got two films uh, along similar lines coming out, not exactly simultaneously, but but uh, very close together. Yeah. But, but 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 they are, you know, it's funny. They all they almost make a trilogy between Gravity, Interstellar, and The Martian. It's true. They'd be that would be a great night of adventure. Yeah, aside space. from their kind of terse titles, uh, you know, they all take a different look at. Uh, kind of the realities and the surrealities of uh, traveling in space and, mm-hmm. and what it does to the human condition. For anyone who hasn't seen uh, The Martian, I'll give you a little bit of a, a summary of the plot. It, we, we, uh, we start on the Martian surface where a, a team of uh, astronauts 
are about to be swept away by a Martian storm. And the, the, the crew get off the planet all but uh, Mark Watney, the botanist, and he's presumed dead. Now, he's left alone with limited supplies. He, had, he did survive the storm. But uh, and some near future sci-fi resources that provide him with endless breathable air, for instance. But uh, yeah, he he figures it out. He finds ingenious ways to grow food and stay busy. And then when NASA clues in that he's still alive, there's this whole separate section of the story where basically all the the uh, characters back on Earth try to figure out a way in which they can rescue him. And uh, you know, it being a Ridley Scott feature, it looks spectacular. I felt like this near future world uh, in vision there was enough realism in the tech and the fx to make the suspending your disbelief a breeze and damon is as usual he's totally sympathetic and as the loneliest man in the solar system and the fact that he's supported by chuatelegia for jessica chastain Kristen wig sean bean jeff daniels michael pena kate mara i mean these are really terrific actors and it makes every scene a, a joy to watch because they're all right on the money well clearly uh, ridley scott can get whatever cast he wants. <laughs> yeah, looking. that's right. I mean, that's one of the, the perks of being a powerhouse director is, and with the kind of track record that he has that uh, people would want to be in these films. They're usually films to be remembered. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure he was able to fill those roles for the most part with the people that he wanted to have. And yeah. it's, it really shows. It's, it's very well cast. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, every, every role seems perfectly filled. But just, you, yeah. know, you know, Jeff Daniels is the NASA head who's got to balance the, the politi- his sort of political aspirations with the realities of, you know, trying to keep this uh, keep this uh, uh, corporation basically going, this government arm, and, and, you know, keep the funding flowing. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, so the, the, that gives us this nice kind of two-pronged storyline of, of what's happening to uh, to mark on on Mars and what's happening on Earth that that, that uh, you know we get suspense both ways wondering like how are they going to pull this off and how's he going to live and it's it's very well. Um you know, constructed in that sense that yeah. we get those two I, two I, bits of suspense. I totally agree, and and the the fact of the matter is is that any one of these actors could carry a movie by themselves and mm. have in the past, and the and the characters are rich enough that you could actually you feel like you go off with them and spend most of the movie with any one of them and get a real sense of who they are. You know, they feel fully fully rounded. But I even though I saw the movie twice. I didn't love it, and I was trying to think about why, and I think partly it's because I feel like it runs out of steam a little bit before the end. As with many Ridley Scott movies, it feels about 20 minutes too long. Um, I also felt like, uh, although I loved the humor in the film, there were elements of it like the no excuse for a 70s soundtrack that made it feel like (laughs) a little bit ripped off from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, You know, And and I wondered how they could include Bowie's Starman but uh, omit Life on Mars. (laughs) Um, And I also also didn't really, although I like the actors, I felt like some of the scenes back on Earth resembled an Irwin Allen disaster movie. You know, how are we going to save and do this thing? Uh, and and uh, and I, I think the bottom line is I don't know that I ever quite believed that Watney wouldn't make it off the planet. I figured he'd MacGyver his way off yeah. Mars. And, the, and, and that allowed for, it didn't allow for a lot of jeopardy. No, I, I think uh, it's pretty clear how this is going to end up yeah. uh, while you're watching the film. Like, it's just, you uh, if if they hadn't made you invest that much in the characters and and, and I mean Interstellar kind of sets you up for what happens yeah uh, that 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 there's something mystical going on and and things aren't gonna if, if not a happy ending a sort of profound ending but um you know I don't I don't think the Martian is trying to go for that kind of level no I, it's not it's a different uh, kind of movie yeah altogether. I, I kind of saw it as more of a raw raw adventure yeah kind of film and. Um, you know, I, I think maybe you're right that the scenes on Earth do kind of pad things out a little bit, you know, especially when you it becomes clear that, you know, that they're going to get this guy off the planet no matter what. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, you're, you're still kind of marveling at how they created that world. And uh, I guess uh, I think according to the credits, I think they shot in Jordan. In a desert yes, in that's Jordan, right. Just, to, you know, in a location that hadn't really been used just to give it a different kind of look. Um, you know, being the, the visual style is one of the things that really Scott is sometimes known for sometimes chastised for uh, <laughs> yes you know yeah but but, but, but i think yeah. i think here he had the pretty good balance of, of uh, visual style and then storytelling yeah i think his whole uh, the professionalism sometimes it's its own reward and it just it's a big popcorn movie i can't fault it for any of that i just uh, a lot of people said were a lot more supportive of the martian than say interstellar whereas mm. interstellar felt to me almost like its ambition to try to say something about the human experience made it much better film in terms of the way it made me feel 
feel as an audience member. Going back to see it again and again, I felt it was richer and more interesting every time I did, whereas I think having seen The Martian twice is probably the, the long and short of it. Now, um, I should also say that I thought 3D was pointless for The Martian. Again, this <laughs> yes. is one of those cases where I saw it once in 3D and I was like, why did they bother? Uh, and then I saw it in 2D and I liked it a lot more. Uh, but uh, you showed me... A, a film that relates to the Martian in a big way called Robinson Crusoe on Mars yeah. from 1964. Yeah, early maybe, 60s. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, this is uh, this is an early 60s movie that basically posits the same thing about an astronaut getting stranded on Mars. And, uh, you know, told with, um, you know, certainly a lower budget and, uh, you know, a cast of, what, three actors? <laughs> yeah, I think. and a monkey. And a monkey, yeah. We get... Uh, we get Adam Adam West, as well. not the star. You know, this is pre Batman, but he's mm. sort of one of the astronauts on this mission. And uh, you know, we uh, Paul uh, Paul Mantee. Paul Mantee, yep. who is kind of a you know more of a kind of a character actor. This is really one of his very few starring roles. Um, as as our, our hero, the the astronaut gets stranded on the red planet, and then you know he has to find different ways to to uh, to be able to breathe and and to find food and so they come up with some kind of deus ex machina ways of of <laughs> providing with air, oxygen and nutrition so he can have this adventure where where he's on a mars that's being mined by alien races but um <laughs> you know so obviously there's no aliens showing up in the martian um would have been fun if they kind of hinted yeah they went that way something. Yeah, but yeah. but that would that would probably you know kind of break the spell i suppose to a certain mm-hmm. degree obviously in 1964 people uh, you know, man had been in outer space, but he hadn't been to the moon yet. So, um, you know, we're kind of, it's kind of interesting that we're between the cusp where there is a space program up, up and running, um, as opposed to some of the 50s uh, science fiction movies where it's all sp- speculation. Here they've got a little grounding to go on based uh-huh. on some of the orbital missions and so on, Mercury and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then they take it to the next level, you know, by having him discover. Um, you know, burning rocks that can keep him warm in a cave, and, and <laughs> yeah. ways that he can recycle uh, his oxygen and that kind of thing. But it's 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 interesting how you know they try to pull back from being too extreme. Obviously, we have flying saucers showing up and performing mi- a mining operation. You know, but but uh, but for the most part, it's it's certainly a far cry from the films of a, of a decade before. Um, directed by I think Byron Haskin, who uh, had a hand in uh, the War of the Worlds. The right. George Powell. In fact, the, the flying saucers in this look very much like the Martian saucers of War of the Worlds from a decade before. But yeah, he directed the uh, the uh, George Powell production of the H.G. Wells, which um, story, which has very little to do with. Uh, the H.G. Wells book, right, really. sure, but the, um, and this one though is is definitely an adaptation, a creative adaptation of the Daniel oh, Defoe, Defoe story. Novel, yes, uh, though it does feel also a lot like. I mean, it's not, it's not. They're ma- not making the effort to try and make it as realistic as as some. the The element of adventure comes in that also connects it to things like John Carter from Mars, which of mm. course they recently made a film yes. of as well, which was a complete fantasy. Uh, and and I, I kind of appreciated that. I, I appreciated that there was like, there's almost two halves of the film of the movie. There's the there's the, the first part where he's finding ways to survive, and then there's the part where he meets Friday, Victor London, <laughs> and, uh, and discovers there's this whole slavery ring going on yeah. on the planet. Yeah, well, I guess they had to stick to... Uh you know Defoe's story in some sense to provide a man Friday in the form of this alien slave and um, I don't know they don't get too deep into the relationship you know in this film but it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see that kind of weird male it, it kind of reminded me of Enemy Mine of course oh yes yeah that's film. right Lost in Space movie yeah exactly with, yeah. with the man and Martian or you know alien alien on, sure. on another planet um, but uh you know, like Paul Manti is is interesting that he's kind of an understated actor. He's not like your kind of Shatner-esque or you know Leslie Nielsen type leading yeah. man. He's a little no, you more. You can see either of those guys in these this oh, yeah, these totally. kinds of movies. <laughs> um, you know, he's not any. He's not a typical matinee idol kind of guy. He's not the kind of square jawed, two fisted hero. So it's, right, you know, it's 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 like they they really wanted to try and do something that was a little more plausible. I mean, they try to come up with a scientific explanation for everything, no matter how wrong it turns out to be. <laughs> um, but, you know, they want to have some excitement because obviously they, it's, it, Paramount was producing this, so um, they're after the kiddie market to a certain degree, but uh, at the same time, they want to make it plausible enough that adults would enjoy it too and not just roll their eyes at this thing. So, you know, it's it's not the healthiest balance between 
the two sides of it. But obviously it made a big impression because um, the founder of Criterion, who passed away, uh, I guess, quite some time ago now, but um, he had the list of, of, I think, three films that he wanted to put out in the Criterion collection uh-huh. once, he, once he got up and running in the Laserdisc days. Uh, I think one was King Kong, one was Citizen Kane, and the third film was Robinson Crusoe on Mars out of all the, like, the classics that they've gone on to present. And it was one they presented late in the Laserdisc uh, cycle when they finally got the rights from Paramount to put it wow. out. Because Paramount had little to no interest in reviving this film. And eventually they they, they more recently brought it back on Blu-ray and, and DVD. But it was one of those films that they were chomping at the bit no matter how small the market would have been for it, which I would imagine would be pretty small. Pretty I can't, small, sure. You know, it's, it's not, like I say, aside from Adam West having a, a small role in it, the... There's not, there's not a lot of meat there for uh, big time genre fans. It was just a, an interesting entry that had uh, been hard to see for years. And sure, years. sure. And then there were a few other movies from the era that that mined space and Mars. I mean, and, and these were fairly low budget and maybe didn't have the ambition of Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Like uh, I'm thinking of the Angry Red Planet and Conquest yeah. of Space, and of course, It: The Terror from Beyond Space, <laughs> which is a great title, wound up being a big influence on Alien. Yeah, I you know it's funny. I I, I was reading some sort of dismissive write ups on it <laughs> exclamation <laughs> point yeah, right yeah. in the title Terror from Beyond Space, mm. uh, and when I finally saw it, it's pretty good. Like it's 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 kind of I think, and I think maybe it was in turn inspired by the thing, the Howard Hawks production that became remade by John Carpenter years later, but. Um, same kind of idea. It's basically the thing, only set in outer space. But the the monster is kind of terrifying. Like he like, tears through metal bulwarks, and he's lit from behind, and he's kind of terrifying. And it's actually really effective. And it's like it's like seventy five minutes long or something like that. It's a, it's obviously like a you know the B half of a double bill kind of film. But but uh, as far as like a, a, a an outer space adventure of that time, it's got some strong horror elements to it which isn't always the case with some of these films. And also, it's really brisk. Like, it really moves because it's, it's only 75 minutes long. So if you get a chance to see It, The Terror from Beyond Space, which I think MGM put out, um, it, it's really worth uh, taking a look at. Maybe even watching it with Alien. Now, the 70s, there were a few Lost in Space kind of movies. I, I, uh, I couldn't... Uh, talk about this genre without mentioning Silent Running from 1972. It was directed by Douglas Trumbull, who was famously the visual effects supervisor on 2001 A Space Odyssey and on Blade Runner. And uh, he also produced the TV series The Star Lost, which I which <laughs> I learned. I didn't know this, but that's kind of one of those, those uh, cult, super cult sci-fi fil- series from the 70s. Uh, that I haven't seen in years, but I remember well from when I was a kid. Oh, I remember the Star Lost. It it, it was pretty low budget. Like the fact, like it's odd that he was involved because the special effects for, as I recall, were pretty poor. They had some good models, but they was all shot on videotape, so they looked cheesy. Like even no matter yeah. how good the the model of the space arc that was carrying the remains of the human race through outer space. Uh, no matter how good the model was, it looked bad on yeah. It's 70, shot on video, seventies videotape, and that flat lighting. I mean, it even looks it even looks Canadian because it was <laughs> it was made in Canada. Yeah, and it has that Canadian look, like just mm-hmm. that certain cheap lighting. And I, it's funny, like I don't know why Canadian shows from that period look so. Doggone Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is either, but yeah, it, it, there's definitely a uniform look. Yeah. Uh, and if we're, if we're going to nod, give our, nod our hats towards TV series, of course we should mention Star Trek and, and Space 1999 in this category. In this context. Yeah, I mean, that is the great Lost in Space TV show. Uh, and, and uh, you know, even recent Canadian series Ascension, which I saw not long ago, I found that pretty interesting. That's another lost traveling in space show. I've heard it's good. I I, I really want to revisit Space 1999. I'm surprised it never got a reboot at some point along the uh, yeah, line. Yeah, me too, given um, all the other reboots. I just found the first two episodes on a laser disc. Nice. <laughs> so I'm going to watch that at some point. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I've, I've gone back in recent years and watched a few, and I remember as a kid uh, Space 1999 being a lot scarier than Star Trek. And it still holds up. I mean, some of the plots don't make a lot of sense, and it, and the 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 sort of threats, the alien threats that they encounter are are they're often sort of disembodied, you know, energy fields and things like that. And of course, the special effects just don't really hold up. But but they are creepy. Yeah, the shows gave me a weird vibe when I was a kid and strange dreams. I'm sure. And I think I think I mean not to get hung up on Space 1999, but I'm guessing a lot of like Doctor Who writers probably also moonlighted on sure. Space 1999. I mean, uh, 
1999 was an independent production, ITV as opposed to a BBC production, but I'm guessing a lot of the talent kind of crossed over, especially when one would have an off-season and they'd be yeah. able to work on the other one. But, um, you know, definitely they, they, they had no problem being a little scarier than their North American counterparts totally. on both of those shows. Um, but anyway, uh, we're getting off yes. topic <laughs> here because we started talking about Silent Running. Silent Running, uh, Bruce Dern plays Lowell. He's a botanist, again, a botanist, <laughs> taking care of plants in a space greenhouse aboard a deep space ship called the Valley Forge. He's one day hoping to take those plants and reforesting the decimated Earth. Uh, when he's given orders to destroy the dome, he refuses any mutinies uh, with the help of three drone robots, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, who I think kind of inspired in some way. I mean, there's, a, of course, a history of robotic characters in, in movies, but uh, but when I when I watched Interstellar, I was like, this, they kind of remind me of the, oh, those, very those much, robots yeah. of Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Um, there's a heavy environmentalist message on Silent Running, and uh, for, for, but I think, I think for a sort of post-apocalyptic hippie space movie it totally holds up and uh and yeah I, I i would recommend people seek it out if they are into it i really like silent running i mean it's so much a, pro- <laughs> a product of its time mm. um you know obviously post 2001 people want to see more kind of relevant kind of space movies more now and there's there's a whole slew of them there's one called countdown directed by robert altman that came out oh yeah that time yeah. And, um Marooned is another one. Uh, Gene Hackman was in it. I think it actually got an Oscar for its special effects. And okay. Was, and then it wound up as an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's pretty drab, but it's got this great cast, including Hackman, and I can't remember who else is in it. There's, you know, some B, B stars from the late 60s. But, you know, we're certainly getting away from the, the ray gun and, you know, slimy monster kind yeah. of aspect. And, and Strange Running is one of the better examples of, of sort of this move towards a more if not realistic, a, a more sort of grounded in modern society yeah, kind well, of science uh, fiction. Yeah, it's sort of like before 2001 and after, and I think almost yeah. every every sci-fi film after 2001 owes some kind of debt to it. Well, yeah, because it just raised the bar in terms of special effects. And, and, and also thought, like philosophy and thought. Exactly, and, yeah. and you know, portraying a realistic view of space and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, trying to get the physics right yes. and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I mean, Dern is, you know, just the idea of, Bruce Stern playing a an unhinged astronaut. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just too too wonderful to to not want to investigate. Yes, in. yeah, I agree. Uh, so that's Silent Running. Um, I also want to mention Capricorn One from 1977, written and directed by Peter Hyams, who actually has quite a career in sci-fi. That director, uh, including 2010, which we mentioned, mm. Outland, the sort of high noon in space movie with Sean Connery. He also directed Time Cop, which people <laughs> of a certain generation I know hold dear. That's a fun uh, movie. Um, Capricorn One is is an odd one in this in this particular genre in the fact that they don't actually go to space. It's a it's it's a conspiracy movie in that regard. James Brolin, Sam Watterson, and O.J. Simpson, believe it or not, are astronauts in final prep for a NASA launch on the Capricorn One, the first mission to Mars. All systems are nominal, and the politicians in the stands with their complimentary binoculars are pushy and sleazy. But <laughs> just then, the astronauts are spirited out of the capsule and put on a private plane to an undisclosed location in the desert. Hal Holbrook is there as the NASA bigwig, and he gives a long, impassioned speech about dreams and appropriation and politics and how, if there's a problem with a life support system, it will end the entire program. And the solution is that they're going to fake the trip. <laughs> and that they're going to shoot it all in TV studio. And Brolin, who is is crazy how much he's so he's like in this movie especially he's like his son Josh Brolin, who's now you know a big working actor. Um, Brolin says he's not going to participate in this deception, and that's when the safety of the astronauts' family are threatened. And then of right. course they you know the good guys, bad guys. Meanwhile, Elliot Gould, who always is unwrapping things, he claims in this movie. <laughs> he's a TV journalist who's always flirting with Karen Black too um, and they are and meanwhile uh, they're, they're interviewing Brenda Vaccaro who plays James Brolin's wife and you just really can't imagine the two of them together no. but anyway um, uh, Gould also shoots Poole with a buddy who works at NASA and the buddy tells him there's something weird going on with the TV broadcasts that they couldn't be coming from outer space and uh 
it's I don't I don't I <laughs> I I really wanted to mention this film because I actually really love it. I just because it's about this big conspiracy. It's not really about the science, and it's very 1970s, and it's pretty campy. But it's also surprisingly relevant the way that we don't trust the technology. A lot of the stuff that we get given these days, I think I think this this definitely speaks to that. Uh, the idea that we're all under surveillance and uh, the. And I, I think the, the idea that people behind the scenes are faking a Mars mission isn't hard to believe. I mean, you know, Ridley Scott just did it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I think this is material that could stand to be rebooted if, if they felt like it. Uh, I, I did. The movie is far from perfect. Uh, you know, the astronauts, when they finally escape captivity, they do it ridiculously easy uh, easily and then they spend way too much time out in the desert and there's Telly Savalas who shows up in a weird cameo <laughs> uh, you know who I think actually Vin Diesel owes a lot to when I think about the career of Vin Diesel and I think about Telly Savalas they've got a lot of stuff going on in common um, but it, it is seen from like this amount of time later 38 years later it's it's a really fun little movie well you know it's funny I always wonder like, like I really enjoyed this film when I saw it I think I saw it First, uh, I saw like a network presentation, you know, edited for TV or whatever. And then later I saw it on, on home video or whatever. But, um, you know, I wonder like if it hadn't been for this film with, with the they fake the moon landing kind of nut bars have, have, have gotten as far with their uh, conspiracy ideas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Theories if, if this film hadn't existed in the first place. Because this is really kind of the first concrete place I can think of that this uh, kind of ideas started circulating that you uh-huh. know what if what if the, the landings were faked and blah blah blah. So um, and the fact know, that Kubrick may have had something to do with it. Well, yeah, then you know that gets uh, pulled into it, and then we got Room Two Thirty Seven. You know, which yeah, tries and to Interstellar also that makes at the beginning of Interstellar. It's like they changed the textbooks because it's assumed that the all the moon landings were faked. And that's like <laughs> a little plot point in that movie. And I I think there might be a movie that's coming out soon about uh, Kubrick being asked <laughs> to. Uh, fake the moon land. Oh, I, cool. I think I saw something about this online recently. Mm. So, so, you know, we're going to revisit that whole idea here, but here, you know, here is fodder for a kind of a, a tense, all the president's men type three days of the condor thriller with astronauts. So, so, <laughs> so you know, I, I kind of like that idea. I don't think it succeeds on, on the scale of those films, but, uh, you know, but it's certainly, certainly fun. Some great chase scenes and, that cast. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's the most 70s cast. Yeah, it's you truly, could ever hope for. truly the most 70s cast. Um, I want to also mention The Black Hole from 1979. This is one I actually never saw when I was a kid, but I've gone back to watch it you know, does part mm. of research for this for this our podcast You're today? Brave man. Uh, yeah, and I I think I I really you know I really got dug into it. I I I can't say that I'll recommend it, but I can understand why it got made and and how how they went about it. I uh, basically Disney wanted to get in on the space race post Star Trek and Star Wars, um, and uh, this one has a real twenty thousand uh, leagues under the sea vibe to it, and I guess at twenty million dollars the budget, it was the most expensive Disney film produced mm. at the time. The cast is totally old school: <laughs> Anthony Perkins, Ernest Borgnine, Robert Forster, Maximilian Schell, and Yvette Mimieux. And as the voice of Vincent, the robot, vital information necessary centralized <laughs> is what that stands for, uh, is Roddy McDowell, who I think gets the best lines. Uh, oh, and Slim Pickens is the voice of another one of the robots. So you know what you're dealing with here if, when when Mr. Pickens is a robot voice. Yeah, he's one of the cute robots. Who, yes. who is, you know, again, like a Huey, Dewey, and Louie situation. Actually, they're very similar to the, the silent running robots, almost bordering on plagiarism but yeah yeah I, I guess after r2d2 and c3po you had to have a cute robot yeah to make credible right. science you, fiction. you can really get a sense that this film was put together sort of by a corporation you know it's like the, the i don't there was just bits of it that were borrowed from everything um now i will say the future as seen in the black hole is a few interesting touches uh yvette Mimieux has esp which is very <laughs> 70s and the robot looks a little bit like a plastic Muppet. Uh, oh, and there's lines in the script like, you will be remembered as one of the greatest space scientists in history. <laughs> and, and the whole movie stops for a while so the robots can play video games. So that's yeah. th- those are the kind of decisions getting made. Uh, I, will, I think the best thing about the movie is the John Barry score, which actually provides a lot of gravitas that otherwise the movie doesn't earn at all. Um, and the production design is not bad. Uh, most of it takes place on a spaceship out, out in the middle of nowhere in the, on the verge of a black hole. But uh, it, it's, it's pretty awful. I mean, I have to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the spaceship looks great. Um, that's 
kind of a dream cast, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, there's lots of great aspects of it, like the production design and, and the, the production values of this film are actually pretty stellar. And then the whole, the, the, the sort of the vector graphic uh, stuff with the black hole and all, yeah. all the, <laughs> yeah. the early, early, you know, like the Tron era computer graphics mm-hmm. are, are pretty cool. I mean, they've dated horribly. They just scream late 70s, but, but it was kind of fun at the time. I actually saw this when it came out. Me and I think some cousins... We were in town visiting. We went to see it at uh, Scotia Square in 70 millimeter, which is, uh, yeah. you know, it was fairly impressive back in the day. I'm mean, the equivalent of, of seeing a feature in IMAX these days, I guess. And um, it, uh, you know, even then I felt short Like I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was like 12 and it still felt like kind of a ripoff. <laughs> like <laughs> like it's, the, the ending was one of the biggest disappointments, you know, yeah. like waiting for this because it's a huge buildup. What's going to happen when they go into the black hole? And, uh, and it's basically visions of hell. Yeah. These kind of weird cheapo optical effects like yeah. they, they really kind of cheap out at the end uh-huh. I, I wonder like part of me wonders if they ran out of money or yeah I wouldn't be surprised or just decided not to spend a lot of time on it so um, yeah but the big disappointment at the end we're, but we're seeing for the cast and the robots yeah. and the look of it um, but uh, yeah not not really worth going out of your way to see no, but if, no. if, you, if you have any mild curiosity it's probably worth satisfying by spending some time with it on a Sunday afternoon or something yeah. but it's it's really not a, a classic it, it's it's just kind of a bloated it just reminded me of some of those sort of more bloated late period disaster movies where yes. somebody just felt they had to make one like Meteor <laughs> right. or Sean Connery or something which like that which is definitely in this period as well yeah, yeah totally and yeah. then there's a Meteor in this film yes. as I recall yes kind of destroys the ship but um but uh, yeah, not not a success, no, <laughs> really. No. But, but yeah, kind of a good evidence of how Disney was floundering in the late seventies. <laughs> yeah, they had know. a rough time through there. They, they really did. Once once Walt died, I mean, they 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 managed to go on autopilot for the first half of the decade because Walt had kind of planned out their next round of projects, which kind of carried on after he died. But after like Robin Hood and maybe even the Rescuers, they were kind of out of ideas. So you get stuff like this and yeah, um, the Black Cauldron, an attempt to do like a more adult Disney feature. <laughs> And, and and this was a t- an attempt to do something that would appeal to an older audience, I guess, but still kind of be kid appropriate, and it kind of falls somewhere in between, yeah, kind of miserably. Yeah. Now to to end our time in the seventies, I wanted to to talk about uh, Saturn Three, <laughs> which is another stinker. But it was directed by Stanley Donan of all people, and I remember going to a birthday party as a kid, going to, and they played this, and I don't think it was necessarily that kid friendly, but but because it was sci-fi and everyone was into Star Wars, and again, you know, people wanted to see this stuff. Basically, Saturn Three is a set on an outpost on the desolate moon of Saturn. Uh, apparently the Earth of the future is so overpopulated they need to outsource their science facilities all over the solar system, including this horticultural site. So there we go, plants again. <laughs> uh, it's run by Kirk Douglas, who plays a character named Adam, and his lover, Farrah Fawcett, who happens, they sort of common law, and they seem to have a nice thing going, uh, but uh, they're, they're visited by a psychopathic Harvey Keitel, who apparently, his in Brooklyn accent, so displeased <laughs> the director that uh, when Keitel refused to do do any looping they dubbed over his voice with a British actor uh, and that seems that sounds really weird and they didn't do a very good job of it um, so his character is supposedly bringing in a robot to replace the humans but because uh, his character is a, a, a murderer and the robot named Hector takes an interest in well basically the, the robot takes on the character of Hi- Harvey Keitel's uh, you know inner self because they're connected uh, mentally and emotionally so uh, because cause Keitel takes an interest in the Farrah Fawcett character so does the robot and then also takes on his homicidal tendencies and I think the movie wants to be about the love triangle uh, about you know younger man threatening the dominance of the older but it's just it's really just terrible and it feels very disc go. Uh, <laughs> Douglas is always watchable, and I, I did like the sets, but Fawcett is pretty bad, and Keitel, well, as soon as his voice is taken away, he's just he's just kind of hollow, uh, and he has terrible hair. Uh, I think the robot <laughs> actually gets the most screen time. Yeah, I think the robot's probably the best thing about this yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I still remember the ads that came out when this film was released, you know, something is wrong on Saturn 3, and that, which actually became like a, again, referring back to Mystery Science Theater, speaking of being lost in space, but but they they would often refer to that. <laughs> Anytime they had a movie dealing with outer space, at some point somebody, one of the robots or somebody would, you know, just say in a really pretentious voice, you know, something is wrong. On Saturday, Saturday three, yeah. you know, when when the movie's going horribly astray. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and of course the reviews, you know, something is wrong with Saturn three, and that was yes. kind of 
you know, as a result, I didn't see it in the theater when it came out. It was the, the word on it was just that bad. Yeah, but West, I mean, Donan didn't he direct like West Side Story? I mean, he's he's one of those guys who's been involved. He had a, a well, grand, not West Side Story, not West Side but, Story? But, but Singing in the Rain, Singing in the Rain. There we go. And, yes, and, that's uh, what I'm thinking. You know, collaborated with Gene Kelly on a number right. of projects, and, right? And also made uh, his probably his best non-musical is Charade or Charade okay. with. Yes. Uh, Audrey Hepburn and Cary I mean, these, Grant. these are kind of classics of an older, er, earlier era. How he got tied in to do this film, I can't yeah, imagine. Yeah, very odd. It, it makes me wonder if he was just kind of brought in at the last minute when somebody else quit. It could be. Because it it's hardly seems like material that was suited to him. No. Yeah. So, Stephen, I know you have not a lot of love for Event Horizon. Can you tell me why? <laughs> I don't know. I, I I just remember thinking that the, the it didn't balance the sci-fi and the horror terribly well. It just kind of does this shift partway through, and I just didn't enjoy the horror part of it. I guess it's been so long since I've seen. It. I mean, I haven't seen it since it came out. I just haven't felt compelled to. And it it, it feels like the kind of movie I should have loved. Mm-hmm. You know, great cast. Uh, you know, I like Sam Neill and just about anything. And it just. Uh, I just didn't buy any of it where it suddenly turns into a Clive Barker novel or <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. like Hellraiser in space. It, it, I just, uh, yeah, it just didn't do it for me. I okay, guess. well, just, that's I, fair. I remember going to see it in the cinema, and and I don't generally eat a lot of popcorn, but that day, for some reason, I guess I'd skipped lunch or something, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to get a big bucket of popcorn and I start eating it and then the horror aspect of it really kind of climbed in my head and about halfway through the bucket of popcorn I started feeling really sick Ooh. and that was partly because of the visuals as well because it's pretty gory yeah it gets pretty and intense. uh yeah and it uh and I had this such a physical response to it that I almost was kind of in awe of it like wow that film almost made me sick so <laughs> so when it came out on uh, DVD I revisited it and I I had a similar kind of visceral reaction so I mean that in itself is I don't know if you if you'd even call that a recommendation, but it's something that happened. <laughs> I I felt something strong. I, I seem to recall the kind of unsettling nature of the film. I, I part of me thinks that they were using like some heavy bass, um, like tones to kind of unsettle, unsettle your stomach the audience, possible, or, or like some some weird manipulation of sound. Like there's something going on there. I feel like uh, I, the film has enough defenders that I feel like maybe I should give it another watch at some point. Yeah. Uh, well, I can loan you the DVD if you like. Yeah. Uh, the the gist is it's 2047 and the, the the ship, the Lewis and Clark, has been sent to investigate the reappearance of another ship called the Event Horizon that was sent to explore another galaxy seven years before and vanished. Now, it was using an experimental star drive and when the crew of the Lewis and Clark uh, arrive, they find evidence that the crew of the Event Horizon murdered each other in an orgy of blood and and you know, <laughs> orgy of orgies. Yeah. Um, and uh, so space when they mad. space madness, <laughs> when they find where the drive actually took them through a wormhole to another dimension, that's when things get pretty bad for the rescue ship. Now the film is definitely indebted to Alien in a whole bunch of ways and in any any number of other horror movies, but I found it pretty effective. I think it has some good scares. It has a great set. And somehow they are able to make the event horizon look a little medieval, despite the fact it's a spaceship. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, there's a cast. Sam Neill, Jolie Richardson, Jason Isaacs, and Lawrence Fishburne, who I think really give it it all. Um, so, so yeah, I think, but I think the, the lasting impact for me, again, was that, that popcorn that kind of really, <laughs> that really got to me. Um, so... I, we didn't mention when we were talking about films back in the 60s and 70s, we didn't mention Solaris, the original uh, version of the Stanislaw Lem novel, right. which I've always found a bit turgid. Um, and that's sort of why I brushed over. I didn't want to revisit it. I've seen it once and it's very slow. And the sets are are really amateurish. I mean, the ideas behind it, I mean, it's thoughtful science fiction. And I think I think it's ambitious in terms of what it's trying to tackle. But... but um, the the movie I wanted to recommend was actually the the Steven Soderbergh version of Solaris, which came out in two thousand and two, uh, and this one is absolutely fascinating, and it's a really lovely insular science fiction film. And unfortunately, no one went to see it when it came out. <laughs> so, no, I, probably a little too heady, for, maybe for folks. Um, but yeah, I see what you mean with the the Tarkovsky film. It's it's it it looks kind of rough, and but I, I you know I think there is an emotional core there that. You know, you might have to watch more than more than once, or just watch a lot of Tarkovsky <laughs> to get out. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But but I think the Soderbergh film does a good job at kind of tightening it up um, without losing that emotional resonance mm-hmm. and, and the whole idea of memory and its effect on you and time travel and that kind of thing when you're getting further away from your 
planet, the effect on your psyche. I, I think that uh, I think uh, Solaris does all the right things in, in remaking what some people consider a classic and what some people may not. But <laughs> but um, uh, he's you know it's 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 always interesting when Soderbergh decides to remake something. I think of uh, his version of Crisscross, the film noir, which is another uh, film that seems to have gone under the under the radar for for fans of, of of his work it's not one that's discussed as much and and this one is certainly worth a revisit yeah i believe it is i i think uh, george clooney in one of his most emotional roles he plays mm. chris kelvin who's he's a psychologist who's asked to go to a space station orbiting a distant planet called solaris something's happened there something really weird and since kelvin was a friend of the mission commander he's been asked to go and when he gets there the two remaining crew members he finds they they may be crazy uh they're played by viola davis and jeremy davies uh and then unexpectedly and completely out of the blue Kelvin's deceased wife, played by the luminous Natasha McElhone, appears. And then we get frequent flashbacks to sort of rainy future Earth, where that the couple were happy for a brief time before recriminations and depression tore them apart. Uh, and uh, this person, this woman who has shown up, she there's a suggestion that she may just be a representation of Kelvin's subconscious, which cues a lot of existential dread and a lot, a fair amount of creepiness. But this isn't a horror movie. This is something quite different. Yeah. And uh, and I really love the the Cliff Martinez score by uh, the, it's so hypnotic uh, and sort of electronic, you know, Tangerine Dream esque soundtrack, which I absolutely love. And uh, and I just think this is a great example of science fiction being used to illuminate some deep human experiences, guilt fear, love, identity. I think it's quite profound. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd say people see this Lost in Space movie. Yeah, I think I think it was the time was right to kind of remake it and just refurbish it. I yes. Guess. Yeah. Um, also, not long after that, we got Sunshine from 2007. This is Danny Boyle's science fiction drama written by Alex Garland, who this year made Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, this is... Uh, I think also heavily indebted to Alien, um, but it's a different kind of story. We find ourselves aboard the Icarus 2, which is an effort to deliver a Manhattan-sized bomb into the sun in order to re- recharge the sun, which apparently is going out. Um, and uh, no one knows what happened to the first effort to to do this. Uh, the spaceship might still be out there, hint, hint. Um, <laughs> there are eight grubby astronauts on the Icarus uh, Killian Murphy, Rose Byrne, Chris Evans, pre-Captain America Chris Evans, uh, Michelle Yeoh, Troy Garrity, Hiroku Sonata, Cliff Curtis, and future cast member of The Martian, Benedict Wong. <laughs> uh, and they uh, they basically, bat- things start to go wrong, technical things. And in that regard, it's actually a lot like The Martian. And it's, it's not really, though later in the film, there is a genuine villain and it goes into slasher territory, which I didn't like yeah um, and that was what kind of led to its it, it I, this got fairly middling reviews yes. from what i remember and, and that was one of the that it goes gets a little conventional yeah it, does. it should be getting a little more spaced out yes I guess. yeah no I, I agree and uh and that's a problem but while the film while they're tackling the technical issues about flying a ship basically right towards the sun i really enjoyed it and there's some amazing visuals where where there are these sort of view platforms where they can look at the sun but they have to have it heavily filtered and uh or basically it'll burn you alive right. and uh, <laughs> and that that is pretty cool there's there's some stuff going on there with the visuals which gives it a sense of elemental uh grandeur which I think is the one reason to see the film. Um, and uh, yeah, and another film that definitely fits in the Lost in Space category is Moon from 2009, directed by Duncan Jones, his first <laughs> feature. Duncan Jones, uh, I guess, I mean, you know, it's it's like the guy, there was a lot of talk about this guy by virtue of the fact that he's David Bowie's son. Yeah, wasn't he wasn't he originally Zoe Bowie and he, or is, and he changed his name to Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's a pretty Shades terrific of, director. Shades I, of Moon Unit? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh and and I uh I really like this. It was kind of a throwback to 70s science fiction. Sam Rockwell plays Sam Bell, who's the only operator of a moon-based mining operation providing for Earth this this alternative ener- alternative energy source called helium 3 which has made the company he works for gajillions which i mean it's a great premise but i did wonder why if this stuff is so essential and makes so much money why they would trust its mining to a single man <laughs> oh they've got a system in place which becomes That's revealed not... as we go along yeah i guess it's just the future of <laughs> the no fuss space exploration yes and, yes and commercialization of space um yeah well so, sam rockwell is kind of he is kind of the uh, 
<laughs> the Bruce Dern for our time. <laughs> yeah, in, in, a, good, in a lot of ways. It's a really like, good you point. Know, if you, he, he's what he, I mean, I don't think he's as unhinged in real life, but you know, he just seems to be able to capable capable to play those kind of on edge, keep you on your toes kind of characters. So, so you know, I, I think there was a bit of a, a nod to Silent Running with this film too. I, I like, think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. especially as you know, most for most of Silent Running, Bruce Dern is, is on his own with just the robots. So yeah, and this um, one he has a, a robot helper as well named Gertie, who's voiced by Kevin Spacey. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I don't want to give too much away about Moon because there's a real, there's a great twist in the story, and I would avoid, I would suggest anyone considering watching it who hasn't seen it. Avoid trailers because the trailers give away this twist, and that really bugged me about them. So stay away from trailers. Um, I just want to mention one last film in our our uh, Lost in Space review, and it's not Lost in Space, which we should definitely. I I don't know if I would recommend the film version of Lost in Space no, from nineteen ninety eight. Big um, disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> um, in my my search for movies that that met this space misadventure uh, uh, genre, I saw something called Europa Report. Now, this is something I dug out of of uh, Netflix and had never heard of it, but I guess I was drawn to it because of, partly because of the cast. M. Beth Davids is in it, and she's someone who I oh, really enjoy. Uh, it's directed by Sebastian Cordero, who's, a, I believe this might be his first English language film. And this is the first found footage film that I've seen in years that really uses the concept in a new and unique way. The Europa One is a mission to Europa, one of Jupiter's moons. Water apparently has been found there, and heat blooms have been recorded. Could there be life? So that's what they're going to find out. This crew of six, including Swedish actor Michael Nyquist and Neil Bloomkamp favorite Charlton Copley, they, they set out on this mission with their every move recorded for posterity. So basically the inside of the spacecraft has cameras everywhere. And the sense that you're getting uh, from the setup is that... Um, the space mission is a lot of stuff has been recorded and, and then played back after the fact. So it, it's a genuine like found footage story. Uh, and, and this concept actually makes it work. Like you can actually believe that maybe sometime in the future all this footage was found after all of this was over. Uh, when we meet this space mission, it's a month or so from their destination, but their communications with Earth have gone down. So they're alone out there in the dark. They continue with their mission. The camera's still recording their activities. They are actually not the most exciting astronaut characters that I've ever seen on screen, but the mission is genuinely thrilling, and there is a real sense of scientific wonder and discovery about it. Um, and I think that the filmmakers do a great job creating a sense of realism through this footage and a clever mixing of chronology. Um, so, and I, I think the the final gist of this, without giving too much away, is, is the fact that that scientific discovery is really set up as something that's heroic that lives you know you you risking your life for this for knowledge is something worthwhile and that's what i think i really like the film the film it's called europa report and i think it's a real gem uh it also by the way uses it's kind of a technical marvel it's the most impressive and justifiable use of split screen and multi-screen that i've also <laughs> seen in a long time yeah you, you told me about this being on netflix and i haven't had a chance to see it myself but i'm, I'm really intrigued i remember there was a found footage space movie uh, from a few years ago, now the title completely escapes me, and it was just trounced okay. upon uh, arrival. I think it was a moon mission found footage movie okay. where things go awry. Oh yes, I'm. It's another Apollo movie, maybe. Yeah, maybe something Apollo like that. eighteen, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, but but you know, I, interesting premise, interesting use of the found footage format, but uh, you know, roundly uh, criticized <laughs> for its kind of lame uh, premise and execution yes um so uh you know the, i mean I, I find those films you know if you if you don't have a good cast they're really hard to pull off and it's true. uh this one it, it sounds like they they do have a pretty top flight uh, cast so i'm really curious to looking uh, to look into this oddly enough uh, the most recent episode of doctor who had uh used this format no kidding <laughs> yeah it, it was uh, set on a, a space station uh around pluto i think or something like that where uh, some sentient beings have come to life um, based on people uh, being locked in these sleep chambers and that somehow the the sleep dust out of their eyes has become sentient and formed these <laughs> kind of a <laughs> that's pretty weird pretty crazy <laughs> uh, but then the idea is that of course there's this um, you know we think we're watching found footage and some of it is like from cameras and stuff but then it turns out some of it is actually like sentient we're actually seeing the perspective of like sentient dust motes that Whoa. are watching the proceedings and then 
like it, you know, you gradually realize you, some of the things you're seeing aren't camera viewpoints, but actual like, you know, either monsters or characters. You're actually seeing their, you know, um, first person perspective or whatever. Not the cameras, but it, it happens very gradually. In mm-hmm. fact, I think I have to go back and rewatch it because, <laughs> you know, I didn't didn't dawn on me till very close to the end what was you know what was going on, and then they you know eventually they explain it. But but it's you know something that the perspective just suddenly shifts over the course of uh, the episode. It's the first standalone episode of this series, but it's it's the it's like the typical. Trapped on a base, Doctor Who's. I mean, sure. there's, there's a couple of them every season. Whether it's just you know, running down corridors. And then they're stuck somewhere. Yeah. And there's yeah. The, yeah, stuck on a moon base, stuck on a spaceship, stuck yes. on you know whatever. Yes. Um, but but you know this one obviously they they use that found footage thing much like this one does to uh, to kind of give it a little extra kick and make it a little different from the rest of the season. Yeah. So anyway, it's something else to look up. Funny, funny how uh, we've uh, we've done a lot of or at least some more than usual talking about television on this podcast, which I think <laughs> is totally fine. We should be able to do that, especially with well, genres there's of, like yeah, this. Where there's, there's a lot of crossover. Where there's so much good stuff on TV uh, of in this particular genre, you know, and, and I think it I think it lends itself to serialization, you know, lost in space. Just keep keep getting lost. Sure. Well, that's <laughs> let, let, let's hope that doesn't happen in real life to uh our brave astronauts of the future. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact us on Twitter at LendsMeYourEars, all one word, or search for LendsMeYourEars on Facebook. We're on Stitcher, and you can rate and review us on iTunes, and if you do, we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. Our email is LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter is at Karsten Knox. And I'm Stephen Cook, and my Twitter is at CH underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Thanks for listening to our Trip to the Stars here on lens near ears we hope we haven't put you into a cryogenic sleep Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lensmere Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.